this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to the hindus in focus podcast with me amit barua your host for this episode joseph borel the european union's high representative for foreign affairs and security policy has triggered a controversy by saying that europe was a garden and most of the rest of the world was a jungle he warned in a speech at the european diplomatic academy on the 13th of october that the jungle could invade the garden he continued quote the gardeners should take care of it but they will not protect the garden by building walls a nice small garden surrounded by high walls in order to prevent the jungle from coming in is not going to be a solution because the jungle has a strong growth capacity and the wall will never be high enough in order to protect the garden the gardeners have to go to the jungle europeans have to be much more engaged with the rest of the world otherwise the rest of the world will invade us by different ways and means unquote so what does this speech mean for the rest of the world does it signal a formal end to globalization and integration or does it reflect the true state of the world or are these rare candid remarks coming from a serving european diplomat bureaucrat to discuss these issues i am joined by dr atul mishra who teaches international relations at the shivnadar university welcome to the in focus podcast atul thank you amit it is a privilege so atul what do you make of uh, mr joseph borel's little speech Amit, so you know, uh, just on a slightly um, lighter note, I think uh, what we are seeing over the last couple of years is a great deal of frankness in global diplomatic discourse. I mean, the Chinese wolf warrior diplomats have taken it in one direction; the Russians have taken it in another direction, and our establishment here in India itself has been rather frank and open about its discomfort. uh primarily with the west but in uh, in other contexts as well so a degree of candor and frankness in diplomatic discourse is not new and it's not exclusive for example to the borel speech but on a more substantive note amit i think there are three ways in which we can look at the speech one is of course we can sort of think about it it especially that uh, framing as uh, a contemporary updating of you know 19th and early 20th century european way of organizing the world vis-a-vis itself so you know the the charge used to be or the claim used to be that uh, the europeans are uh, the high point of civilization and the rest of the world was in different stages of barbarism and you could sort of think about that you know against that background you could look at what borel has said as an updated version of the same thing the second way of thinking about it is by the way uh, this ideological framing is the interpretation of uh, it as an ideological statement is of course very helpful and useful for uh, those of us who are morally and emotionally charged by uh, the legacy of colonialism we are triggered by it in a certain sense so for us that proposition is attractive to sort of think about it as an ideological framing but there's something else to think about as well which is that this is also a practical comment made in a very specific context where the first lot of european diplomats not national you know national diplomats who are serving european foreign policy but european diplomats are being trained and borel is basically trying to make a point in a slightly evocative metaphor in order to communicate the need to for european diplomats to as european diplomats engage with the world little more forthrightly little more 
concertedly and with a view to generating real positive effects for the Europeans. And I think the third way of uh, thinking about it is uh, is to sort of look at it as a tactical uh, framing as well, which is to say that in Sweden, in Italy, in France, in Austria, and practically across all of Europe, you have uh, forces that have arisen, you can call them, you know, use different names for them. But they're all forces that are skeptical of the European Union as an open house, as the European Union project, as a project that is universal in its orientation, and it is welcoming of all kinds of diversity. So this is a tactical gesture towards them, which is by a senior functionary of the European Union, who's saying that, look, we are concerned and we are alert to what your concerns are, and we are going to work towards addressing them. So those are the three primary interpretative frameworks that I would use here. But I think what we should do, and uh, and this is what I think we should build upon, Amit, uh, is to look at the larger uh, messages that the speech um, has to offer. So there's quite a lot there. And uh, I think that's what we should discuss. Specifically, um, Atul, you know, this jungle and garden, I mean, he's talking about engagement. He's not saying, you know, I think we have to see his uh, remarks in full. But the use of Europe as a garden and most of the rest of the world as a jungle. Do you think jungle is an unfortunate term to use? It is definitely striking. It is also evocative and it can definitely, uh, it has obviously not gone down well in different parts of the world, especially those that are particularly sensitive about previous characterizations by Europeans or the rest of the world. So, you know, if you think in cultural ca- uh, categories, you can, one point they would say that we are civilized and you're barbarians. This is not a cultural category. I mean, this is, you know, um, how do I put it? This is this is more uh, organic, vegetative, uh, whatever be the term. But it is nevertheless a little, uh, you know, it, it is a term that could have been avoided. To that extent, there is an issue. But again, as I said, we should look at the values uh, and the reading of the world in terms of a jungle. And the key element there, I think, is uh, the absence of a set of values and institutions and conditions that are available in Europe and that aren't outside. And uh, central to all of that is, of course, the fact that the European Union is an institution. Uh, Europeans enjoy democracy. There is rule of law. There is a reasonable degree of prosperity and there is social cohesion. So when you think about these as central elements um, around which Europe has built itself, and then you look at large parts of the rest of the world, uh, you can see why the term jungle might actually make uh, some sense because, you know, there is there's a great deal of disorder. There is a lot of violence in the rest of the world, uh, including on the borders of Europe. But from our point of view, from the non-Western point of view, it's a term that could have been um, avoided. And one more uh, strand that I want to pick up on before I move to more general questions, uh, Atul, is that uh, why he's saying that the gardeners have to go to the jungle, uh, Europeans must engage more with the rest of the world, he also wants, uh, otherwise the rest of the world will invade us by different ways and means. So what does he mean by this? Does he, is he talking about immigrants? You know, this is a problem that Europe has dealt with for a while. Uh, is he talking about, uh, you know, a kind of a military response from Russia? Well, what do you think he's saying here? What does the term invade mean? I think there are at least three axes along which we can unpack this uh, invasion metaphor. 
uh, in the speech, Amit. One is, let's look at this, right? Immigration, um, and he sort of talks about it towards the end of the speech, irregular and illegal migration flows into Europe. This is a problem that Europe in, that, that Europe has been confronting now for well over a decade. And uh, initially, they thought that they could, you know, address it uh, by creating hard borders. But they realized that hard borders don't work because people would still start, will continue to keep, uh, you know, coming up European uh, shores and you'll have to somehow, uh, once they're there, you can't turn your backs on them. So then what they decided was that they would sort of, you know, look at transit points. So, for example, uh, Germans were particularly active in striking a deal with the Turks insofar as addressing uh, in-migration from Africa and the Mediterranean was concerned uh, and from different parts of uh, Asia as well. So uh, so they did that. They also went to North African countries and, and there they tried to sort of create all kinds of arrangements through which, you know, you could create regulatory checkpoints for uh, potential migrants into Europe. So I think in one way what he's suggesting is that you have to think about the problem at its so if you think of immigration and illegal migration particularly as a problem that is concerning Europe, so, you, so European diplomats are supposed to now think not about erecting better walls and strengthening their own boundaries, but in fact going to the sources of migration and seeing what they could do there. So more active diplomacy in that sense. So first is, of course, migration. The second, I think, is uh, something that... Uh, the Americans have uh, now underlined very clearly to the Europeans, which is the security responsibility that the Europeans should take ownership of. Uh, for a very long time, the Americans have, uh, the United States has basically guaranteed European security. And what that has meant is that there is a certain lopsidedness in the European Union project itself. And it's remarkable, right? I mean, we're still seeing the institutionalization of the EU's foreign policy and security policy apparatus, whereas EU's political pillars and economic pillars and, you know, <laughs> the, the stuff of joke, you, uh, EU's bureaucratic pillars, I mean, those have spawned rather well. So there is this concern that Europeans have not taken enough responsibility for their own security. And this is also an indicator. This is also a suggestion for uh, from Borrell to the diplomats to actually go out and actively think about European security, forge partnerships if required, create greater inroads into host countries, wherever your uh, missions are, get talking about security partnerships, not just with the West, because that is within the West, because that is kind of guaranteed, but vis-a-vis the rest of the world as well. And there are two ways of thinking about it, right? I mean, there is there is unconventional or non-traditional security and traditional security. The Americans are going to make sure that the Europeans don't fall, not because the Americans may have great love for the Europeans, but because if the Europeans fall, then the Russians strengthen. So as far as conventional geopolitical security is concerned, the Americans will nevertheless guarantee that, although they've been sort of saying that, you know, the Europeans should step up to uh, their to, and, and own their responsibility on that score. But it's the non-traditional security component that is important, which is to say water security, which is to say demographic, you know, imbalances, which is to say uh, climate change, etc. So you sort of, again, on that score. And the third and a critical, critical element, again, is political project. Europeans have been slightly diffident about you know, relative to their capability and the the success of their institutionalization project, they've not gone out and talked about it to the rest of the world in a way where uh, I mean they've they've 
For example, they have tried to promote European political values primarily by forging development partnerships with the rest of the world. I think the suggestion here is that you also, in your diplomacy, in your foreign policy, you front European political achievements. You talk about European political values, democracy, rule of law, you know, institutionalization, those things front and center as well. So I think security and immigration and uh, politics, those are the three areas in which I think he's wanting uh, the diplomatic apparatus of uh, Europe to become uh, more centrally engaged with the rest of the world. So one point that I wanted to also pick up on is, uh, you know, if we take uh, Europe as uh, the garden, as a definition that has been supplied by Mr. Borrell as a truism, then today when we look at that garden, we see, you know, uh, apart from the war in Ukraine and so on, we also see, uh, you know, and by the way, you, you, we would uh, we saw, you know, after the invasion of uh, Iraq by George W. Bush and supported by Mr. Blair, the Europeans and the Russians showing quite an unprecedented degree of unity, which is now a far cry from what we see today. But we did see that. And uh, we also see, uh, you know, the, the kind of sanctions that have been imposed and the response from the Russians. Uh, basically, uh, Europe today is, uh, you know, starved of energy and it's looking at a rather bleak winter. We are talking about power cuts and it looks a bit like a third worldish garden, doesn't it, Atul? It does. It does. And um, I think the point there in the speech itself, and we can sort of build upon the speech, is this emphasis, this, this um, argument that he makes that interdependence, one of the core aspects of Western modernity and Western value framework that was offered to the rest of the world, which is globalization-induced interdependence, that itself has been weaponized by Russia. And uh, that has then led to, for example, this trend towards deglobalization. Now, this particular challenge is very central, uh, the challenge of uh, high, as they put it, cost of living, and uh, that stemming from the energy crisis. Although I do not think that it is as dire as it was about three, four months ago, as it was sort of being anticipated when uh, the Russians became rather intense in in Ukraine, their their policy did. It's not as dire as it was looking like three, four months ago. The Germans in particular seem to have stocked up enough reserves uh, and Germans were particularly uh, vulnerable that way. Italians, I think, are uh, vulnerable. So are some of the other Eastern European countries, less less so the French and uh, the Brits. But nevertheless, it is a challenge and it is a challenge that is partly a function of the way in which they've gone about forging their, I mean, they've preferred uh, economic development through cheap energy resources and now there is a price to pay for it. So, uh, Atul, I want to pick up on one point that you made earlier about deglobalization. I mean, uh, you know, forgetting, you know, all the specifics, not just looking at the specifics of uh, Mr. Borrell's speech, but looking a little beyond. I mean, we all know, you know, how tough it is for someone from, say, South Asia to get a visa to go to European, to the European Union, forget for work, for even for a visit. We know all this. And we also saw the promise, you know, of a WTO, uh, you know, of a renewed emphasis on trade, markets opening up, you know, all these kinds of things, of course, you know, COVID and post-COVID situation has really, you know, turned things around and turned many things on their head. But do you now feel that the West, in a sense, you know, and I'm and I, I'm specifically talking more about Europe, 
that they are looking more and more inwards now, you know, for their own solutions. And, uh, you know, perhaps this formulation is a reflection of the larger thinking that, uh, you know, we need to perhaps be on our own and safeguard our own interests. So, I mean, this is a this is one of the central challenges that the world confronts, and one of the principal faces of the global uh, crisis is deglobalization. And the first thing to notice there is that this is that deglobalization that we see today, which is to say that fragmentation of the world in terms of both economy as well as geopolitics, as well as um, politics, political values, uh, etc. This is not an organic development, which is to say that people are not or societies aren't or social movements, uh, societies aren't are, are generating social movements, protests that are uh, pressuring governments to deglobalize that. That's not what is happening primarily. And there was a point when peasant movements and trade unionists would sort of say that, you know, economic globalization is producing inequality within. So we're going to pressure our governments to do something What is happening now, and this is actually disconcerting, is that geopolitics is driving a great deal of deglobalization and states have now begun to realize that sometimes prosperity is coming in the way of both security as well as identity. And when you have a political judgment where people are prioritizing identity and security over prosperity, you know, know, the world is in a bad place. So that's the first thing to sort of take notice of when we are thinking about deglobalization. This is not a problem particular to Europe. Of course, within Europe, it has taken multiple forms. But with regard to Europe itself, let's look at uh, the following elements. The European Union is a project. And, you know, there are two things. I mean, if if a project has to deliver, it has to deliver to its core stakeholders, which is to say European societies and European governments. But it also must deliver to the rest of the world. I mean, you know, uh, all the other actors in the world that have relationship with the Europeans. And for that to happen, the project itself must be sustainable. And increasingly, and this is not appreciated enough by liberals within Europe outside, progressives within Europe outside. Increasingly, there is a real strain on the European Union project that is showing up in the form of identity movements, right-wing, there's an entire spectrum of right-wing forces that are against immigration in particular, people flows as it were, one central element of globalization. If you think of globalization as flows of people, flows of services, flows of capital, and flows of ideas. So people flows, they are particularly concerned about And it's not so much the economic argument that they kind of make that, you know, our jobs are being taken away by uh, people coming in uh, from other parts of the world. It's more cultural argument they're making. The argument is that, you know, we're seeing more non-white faces on our streets and we're okay uh, if they're there temporarily, but if they end up creating uh, habitats and settlements here and they kind of, you know, change the demographic and therefore the cultural character of European capitals and European streets uh, and European cities, that's not something that we're comfortable with because we are ultimately Europeans. Now, there is something to that, uh, that there is is something there that everyone should be paying attention to. You could say that, you know, there is a racist element. You could say that this is ultimately some kind of a, you know, a homogenous project that these forces are trying to champion. They're thinking of European Union as as some kind of a Christian only, white only, or primarily Christian, primarily white project. And you could condemn it. But I think if you're seriously, if, if you think about it politically, if you think about politics as an as as an activity in which you take challenges. You, when you confront a challenge, you take it seriously and try and address the challenge rather than condemn it because, you know, 
that's that's the task of the political judge so insofar as that particular bit is concerned insofar as the challenge to european union from immigration is concerned that's a very real challenge and if the europeans are responding to it if those in charge of the european union project are responding to it they are doing it because they are in france in uk in sweden in austria everywhere else i mean in fact except for germany in all the major countries of europe the right is now within striking distance of power and far right in fact in some cases is in, within striking distance of power i mean the, you know the right wingers have actually ended up um, making a mess of the uk the whole brexit saga you have long covid you have long brexit there but europe if it, if if we see signs of deglobalization turn towards deglobalization uh, of a certain sort within europe it is because they now sense that uh, a threshold has been crossed and it crossed and if you do not secure the basic identity of europe and which is the point that he emphasizes borrell also does if you don't secure the basic identity pluralist but essentially european identity of the european union project then the project itself might fail and then you know a failed project is not good both for the core constituents as well as for the world outside but i would think of the european union uh, skepticism of globalization of one kind that is people flows as part of the larger global deglobalization uh, global trend towards skepticism of increased flows and integration and interdependence you know one last point i would just wanted to pick up uh, on you see is that i think covid has shown that uh, you know a visa doesn't necessarily mean that you can see your near and dear ones for a few years and you know given the kind of pandemics that the world might face in future you know a lot of issues uh, you know do come up here and uh, you know uh, rich immigrants might really rethink uh, you know their approach to where they're living but i i just want to uh, you know as a, that was a, as an aside but i just want to pick up on one thing do you see uh, east asia southeast asia and china which of course is really close uh, has been closed uh, because of covid for some time do, do you see these as alternative destinations for people to migrate and live and work in unlikely uh, amit towards a, towards a point uh, b- beyond the point unlikely the chinese are struggling right now on the economic front we don't have the full picture there but the chinese clearly are struggling um what are the other economies what are the other major economies again i don't know what the scene uh, with the japanese are in terms of their economic prospects uh southeast asia again in all of these places i think the crucial question is not so much economic potential which is also which is of course there to different uh, degrees but uh, the reception to the other you know reception towards south asians reception towards africans reception reception of people from west asia and if you see outside of europe the the tolerance and welcoming attitude towards non native faces is generally very low uh japan my god i mean they 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 let you be there but they will not integrate the same with south koreans it's a little better with some of the east asian economies but not very much the two places where i think there is still potential in in the sense that you speak about immigration for uh, for economic and livelihood reasons one is of course australia and the other is canada uh and both actually end up being part of the west but east asian context less so and less because of economic reasons but but more because there is a cultural narrow mindedness which may come in the way atul mishra 
Thank you so much uh, for talking to the Hindus in Focus podcast. We'll be returning to some of these issues uh, in the days and months ahead. Thank you again for talking to us. Amit, it was a pleasure. Thank you. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by the Hindu. We'll see you soon.